The talk is about dignity. We take birth and live and die in a world uh, where there is a great range of joy and sorrow. So we're born into a world of pleasure, pain, birth, life, death, (coughs) predator, prey, female, male, war, peace, all the colors. And if we're not asleep, this range of joy and sorrow can be shattering. Hopefully, it cracks us open. The spiritual journey is one of learning to come to terms with duality. Part of the process is being cracked open. And hopefully we get a sense that we can use the gift of life wisely. So one aspect of dignity is facing life as it is and developing the four Brahma-viharas as well as wisdom. To use the gift of life wisely, we need all the dignity and compassion we can find. In this tradition, a human birth is considered extraordinarily precious. This realm of existence for spiritual work is considered the best realm to be born in because there's not so much pleasure uh, that we get lost in that and don't do spiritual work. And there's not so much pain, like in a hell realm, uh, that we can't do spiritual work. So there's enough balance of pleasure and pain that we can be motivated to understand. This is a poem called Dropping Keys uh, by a great Sufi master, Haviz. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. So the Buddha dropped some keys for us beautiful, rowdy prisoners. And one of the um, keys that he dropped is the teachings on the four Brahma-viharas. So we can learn these practices, put them into practice, and as we do that, we can develop a mature dignity in the face of the joys and sorrows in this world. Loving-kindness, unconditional love, it's considered the foundation of the four divine homes. And we can see that loving-kindness is so fundamental, you know, to um, dignity in this world. It's like it's the fabric of the universe. If you can think of a spring, leaf unfolding, 
you know, in this world of rain, wind, darkness, light, sun, and how you relate to that tender bud opening, that leaf. Um, If you get a quality inside of awareness, of a relationship to that kind of newborn energy, and can wish it well, this is loving-kindness. Galway Canela poet I love has said, can you bless or at least not curse everything that's struggling to survive on this planet? So if we can understand loving kindness as a blessing, you know, to be able to receive the blessing, give blessing, just that pure wishing well. And remembering that it's so easy to lose balance with love. You know, it can so easily slip into attached love. When things don't go our way, how easily it slips into anger or fear. Compassion is orienting the openness of heart that we discover in metta toward the suffering in this world. To understand that we can transform our awareness of suffering into compassion and skillful action, rather than reacting to the pain with anger or cruelty or fear or pity, this is one of the great gifts in life. To lose balance with the caring for the pain in this world, it can so easily slip into grief or sorrow. Or when things don't go our way, it can so easily shift into cruelty, judgment toward ourselves or others. Empathetic joy. We orient the openness of heart we've touched into in the loving-kindness practice toward the joy in the world and appreciate it. Again, if we can get that sense of the vast range of joy in this world, as well as the vast range of sorrow. And to think that we can learn, instead of reacting to joy or pleasure with attachment, or the passing of it with jealousy, over-exuberance, or addiction. Uh, This is an incredible gift, you know, these keys for us rowdy prisoners. So the experience that seems so much like empathetic joy is that attached joy or over-exuberance. We're holding on. And the experience that is the opposite of it is envy or jealousy. The upside of that is worthlessness, comparing. And then upeka, which we'll do tomorrow, or equanimity. And this Brahma-vihara requires the most understanding. It's a deep balance of mind in the face of the joy and sorrow in the world. It's unconditional acceptance. And as Susan was saying last night, the experience that can seem so much like equanimity, and it can look so good, is fake equanimity. (laughs) We're really good at fake equanimity. (laughs) 
we learn it really young. It's acting like everything's okay and acting like we're totally connected and we're not even on the planet. <laughs> and it looks so even and we look so steady and great, but we're disconnected. And we can fake our, you know, we can pretend to fake it, but deep down we're n we know in those moments that we're not free. We're disconnected. And then the opposite of equanimity is reacting. It's reacting to the vast range of sorrow in this world with aversion and fear. It's reacting to the joy in the world with attachment. So hopefully as we learn these practices that we <coughs> develop where the ground is already somewhat soft. It might be that mudita is a practice you connect with as you learn them. And maybe you work more there and then slowly shift to maybe loving-kindness or compassion. Or maybe compassion is the doorway. So, so start to get to know yourself and see what your doorway is to your own journey. Meditation is so much like gardening. We create the conditions as best we can for growth. And sometimes it'll feel like you're the ox and you've got the plow on. You know, and you're plowing the earth, and the earth is hard. Sometimes it might be that you've worked the soil a lot already, but still it's spring, and you have to dig shovelfuls of earth over and over, year after year. You know, but you plant the seeds, and you water. You know, this is like a day of meditation where you do the best you can to keep coming back from being lost in thought, back from being lost in thought. That's planting another seed of metta, planting another seed of compassion. But then, uh, no matter how much work a farmer does, a gardener does, or a meditator does, one lets go of control, of result. One puts in the energy, and then you just understand that it's a much bigger process that one can measure in a day. It's like we get our rulers out and we're trying to measure where we are, you know, at the, <laughs> you know, where am I today? You know, and we're trying to measure how much loving kindness we've developed. <laughs> it's incredible, you know, in one week, you know, and we're so impatient. And it's literally like dropping a seed in the ground and yelling, grow, grow. <laughs> and then digging it up. And, you know, it's just... And then we, <laughs> then we say, what's wrong? <laughs> Why didn't it work? <laughs> this takes such a different sense of time. You know, it takes that gardening sense of time, or really growing a tree sense of time. It takes so much patience. Uh, it takes that um, letting go of measuring day by day. One of the delights for me of being in Burma is, is really seeing such a difference in culture around time. Uh, so they tend to really treat 
the Buddha's death like it happened yesterday. You know, he just walked by. And you can still smell the scent of him just walking by. It's that close. You know, and they plant Bodhi trees around the pagodas, nunneries, monasteries. And he just got fully enlightened there. Uh, And it's so physical, so literal. Sometimes it's so literal that it's palpable in the sense that when it's cold, they put sweaters on the Buddha statues. Really, I mean, it's just that's how close that presence is. And it can seem unsophisticated to us, but it keeps the presence of this awakened being very alive in their hearts. But what I found amazing is that the next Buddha is just around the corner. I mean, you know, even from the teachings, the next Buddha is eons away. And yet, they have the trees planted. They're all ready. You know, there's a certain tree that the next Buddha is supposed to get enlightened under. It's not the same tree as a Bodhi tree. And those trees are everywhere. And, you know, it's just like, just as the, you know, the last one just left, the next one's just around the corner. That's a very different sense of time. Uh, And if you can realize that that's us, you know, that next Buddha is us. <laughs> you know, there's not so much a sense of self-hatred for the pace. It's lighter. You know, the paradox is somehow to have the spiritual urgency with the lightness. And of course we go out of balance. But please try not to measure how, <laughs> how you're doing each day. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just too hard. So loving kindness, it's love with understanding. And why is it so hard? And the question is, for all of us, why would we bother to love when it hurts so much to lose it? You know, it's like, that's the question for all of us. If, if, if there wasn't that sense that loss will happen, then our hearts would remain open. But because life changes, and because we can never really guarantee anything, then of course <coughs> we close up. <coughs> so the meaning of loving-kindness in this sense is unconditional love, meaning that it's deeper than the conditions of duality. It's deeper than gain and loss, predator-prey. It cuts through division. And we have to start where we are. You know, ultimately, whether it's the mindfulness or metta practice, we try to learn to love everything, the rough, the hard, the smooth, the tight, the tick. You know, there's, I always am amazed by that there can be something so small that we can have such a reaction to, you know, or like a flea, or a bed bug, or a mosquito. Um, 
You know, it's reasonable when you think of a, a woolly mammoth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> heading straight for us, you know, that it can be a little disturbing, you know, but there's that range of just that utter something other that's going to somehow get us. And sometimes, of course, that's very real, but we really don't know. And it's that unknown that's so, again, that we don't, can't control. We, we're taught that the proximate cause for loving-kindness is tuning into goodness. Willingness to connect with our own goodness, the willingness to connect with others' goodness. If you think about just what it felt like today, you know, it's such a warm summer day, and the seduction of that. So if somebody has that sense of pleasantness, how easy it is to get into wanting neediness versus just wishing well. Uh, that requires letting go of a certain amount of self-centeredness and humility. It's like when you start to see the wanting, neediness come in, it's okay. It's not to judge that near enemy, it's to learn how to work with it, to be mindful of it, to let it come and go, and eventually that wishing well will appear again. So the dignity in the loving-kindness practice is to know it's possible. You know, to, that is so strengthening to know at times that we can access something deeper. And the more we learn how to access it, it gives us the strength to face what it isn't. You've all been talking about this today in interviews and the other days. It's like you start to see how, you know, we get lost <laughs> and then we reconnect. And we get lost and we reconnect. And we start to have confidence in that process. Just as the proximate cause for loving-kindness is tuning into goodness, the proximate cause for compassion is tuning into helplessness. So contemplate that. You know, how does contemplating helplessness help us find this place of care? Compassion has an element of action in it. It's like there's the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. It's an action of caring. If we are willing to connect with the pain or sorrow in this world, um, the balance is that if we go f too far into it and drown, we won't be effective. And we'll drown in the grief and the sorrow. We'll get overwhelmed by the helplessness in the face of the suffering. And then if we step so far back, <laughs> you know, say we go back to Mars, and then that's too close still, you know, so we go to Pluto, and we really don't even like the universe. You know, we blame the universe for so much suffering. But either way, it isn't effective. So ultimately, these practices are very practical. You know, how can we find that balance? And we learn by losing balance, we learn what care is. And it's a very wonderful feeling. It's pleasant. 
the way you know if compassion is happening is if you're experiencing unpleasantness and having aversion to it. That isn't compassion. Now, it's not to judge it if there's the grief, sorrow. That's fine. But it's just saying that that isn't compassion. Compassion is a wonderful feeling of just witnessing pain and caring for it. When I first started uh, doing this practice, I can honestly say that probably less than 1% of my experience was acceptable to me. Um, So if you think of the range of pleasure and pain that we all face as human beings, I wasn't really that excited about opening to pain. And the first layers that started to open up in my practice were sleepiness, just this unbelievable amount of sleepiness. And when I first started (laughs) kind of acknowledging that that's what was happening, the first thought I had is, what am I going to do with all the sleepiness? You know, it was like this overwhelm, our helplessness in the face of that suffering. And uh, eventually, you know, the next thing that happened was the white flag. You know, it's like, oh, (laughs) maybe... I have to try learning how to experience it. You know, instead of trying to get rid of it, you know, that graceful surrender. Now, there's something very different about sitting in the hall nodding than lying in bed sleeping. Do you know how unpleasant that is? It's like... Now that's really different, and facing that is very different than unconsciousness. You're having lots of moments of consciousness there, and it takes a lot of compassion. And I finally learned to be okay with sleepiness. You know, I do the best I can to stay awake, and then if you can't, you can't. Now that's not really that much suffering, ultimately, but when we're identified with being this yogi that never sleeps, you know, that first layer of struggle and practice is very difficult. Of course, as I started getting less sleepy, (laughs) what am I going to do with all this aversion? You know, that was the next layer. And again, it was this feeling of it's impossible, you know, just this helplessness in the face of that much anger or irritation or fear, you know. And again, you know, that kind of gradual white flag, you know, well, maybe I can try to learn how to experience this, work with it, rather than be motivated to get rid of it and to take it so personally. So this was, went on, you know, after that it was loneliness, and each layer seemed to get harder. You know, it was like the resistance with these layers that I would meet. It was like with this loneliness and deprivation and then the neediness, you know, again, it was that first like, "Mm, (laughs) what am I going to do with this? And it's each time it was the same question. I can't do it. It's too much. Uh, But if you just take a little bit at a time and the dose that you can work with, over time, it's just loneliness. (laughs) You know, it's workable, you know. I'm still here. 
I didn't die of it. I thought I did as a kid, you know, but I didn't. And I slowly learned how to work with it. Uh, instead of the resistance, it's the compassion. And so we learn to connect with these unpleasant experiences in life instead of with resistance, with care. I care about myself. I mean, such an achievement. The more you learn how to deal with this within yourself, the more you can empathize with others. We're not that different. The stories are amazingly different and unique and wonderful, but deep down, (laughs) the human being has all of this range of joy and sorrow to face. So where is the dignity in this? Is that deep acceptance of how it is and learning to care. If you get out of the way and let these experiences come and go, life moves. They aren't permanent. One is stronger rather than weaker by letting them come through and one can help others. But I'm not saying it's always so easy. It's like with um, my sister recently with ovarian cancer. When she hit this new level of dukkha, of it increasing, um, usually each time she hits that new layer, it's unacceptable to me. It's like it's unbearable. And I've worked really hard at trying to learn how to face death and pain and dying and disease. Um, And I understand deeply that death happens. But still, I hit these places of a lot of resistance and pain. And the other day, uh, before the course started, uh, I went to my mother's graveyard just to talk with her about it. You know, it's like, (coughs) I don't like this, you know. Uh, It's unbearable. And then I really think that true compassion comes in when we accept the unbearable. You know, there's just some things in life that feel unacceptable, and yet we have to face them. And if you contemplate the earth, and we take that layer of what's sorrowful or painful, there's so much, it's so vast. And if we can't accept that it's there, that it can be unacceptable, that it is unbearable, our hearts won't be able to open to it. But if you can learn how to meet these things in your own individual life, you can meet them in a universal way. And again, we go through the pain, but we can come out the other side to this deep place of care. And it's wonderful. To the point where I feel at times in my life where I want to be given all the pain in this world. I want to care about it. You know, because it feels wonderful to care about it, if we're not afraid of the pain. Dignity is in that unconditional care. As you do the compassion practice and you learn to do yourself, the benefactor, dear friend, difficult, all beings, there's nothing like it. And the reason why there's nothing like it is because instinctually we rather move toward pleasure. 
you know, and so it's very liberating when we can do this kind of awareness with the pain in the world as well as the pleasure in the world. It goes against the self-centeredness to do that, and it's ultimately why it's so liberating. The last three years that I've been in Burma, I've been involved in um, helping the local school and hospital water projects. It's it's small in some ways if you look at the vastness of pain on the planet, but it's very meaningful because there is so much dukkha in terms of poverty and uh, extremely cruel government, extremely brutal and cruel government. So we built the school, and the school that has been there uh, flooded about three to four months a year, so the children couldn't go to the school. And as some of you know, the, the things are so difficult that the children can't go beyond first grade unless we pay their tuition. So we pay all the kids' tuitions now up through sixth grade, because to pick someone for a scholarship became a joke, you know. <laughs> you know, maybe there's one or two out of 300 kids that don't need a scholarship, so you just give up on the scholarship program. And it's great, you know, once we, once we did that, it felt so much uh, cleaner. So during the retreat, sometimes when we're there for three weeks, uh, if the village has a party, you know, it'll be broadcast on the loudspeakers. And it will be in Burmese, so I don't understand what's going on. And this year, there weren't so many parties. Uh, and about three-quarters of the way through the retreat, we heard most of the night, you know, these announcements happening. It wasn't music, just announcement after announcement after announcement after announcement after announcement. I mean, it's, it's literally like having, you know, a loudspeaker broadcast in your ear, very intense. Um, but there was a young man that... Uh, was at the retreat that has studied Burmese and uh, ordained as a monk. And he came up to me about midnight and said, <laughs> I didn't really appreciate this because I was on my way <laughs> to go to sleep, but he, he stopped me and he said, do you know what they're doing? And I said, no. And he said, they're announcing everyone's name who's ever given anything to the Metadana project to our project in Burma. They announced every single person's name uh, who had given to the village. In term and that's a lot of, you know, we've been doing this project for five years, and it's a lot of people's names, so it was going on hour after hour after hour <laughs> after hour. And they were talking about how, you know, it was all about how appreciative they were about the school. This was all about us building the school, and it was going on and on and on and on. Um, and then, it kept going after he told me this. So I asked him the next day, well, what, then what were they doing? And he said, well, then the village people spontaneously uh, wanted to give back to us. And so they started raising money um, themselves to hire some dancers and musicians from Mandalay to put a show for on for us at the end of the retreat. You know, and it's like, it's amazing, you know, just that 
it was just like so moving. You know, they, it's like they appreciate generosity so much, but it's so hard they want to give back. You know, so that was what the night was about. <laughs> so then, at the end of the retreat, and if you can imagine being on retreat for three weeks in silence, Sayadaw had us in a parade. <laughs> so we, we all broke silence with this parade, and there was a, a band, and, you know, like we were, we were behind all the school children with, you know, the band, and we marched through the village. You know, and everybody was out watching us, and there was a huge ceremony, and I had to give a speech, um, which was translated. Uh, and I have to be really careful what I say. You know, there's spies. It's really delicate. Our presence there is so fragile uh, with this military. Uh, but I really wanted to try to say something that the villagers would understand about us being there. So I said that um, <laughs> that the people in the world really cared about them. You know that that's what the the school is all about. That there are people in this world that are really caring about them, and I don't know if we can really imagine what it's like to live in a totalitarian regime where there's no news. You know, it's completely censored. They have no idea that people in this world care about them. And one of the reasons I go now is as a witness, just as a witness. And I see the eyes of the people in three years. You know, their hearts are on the ground. They're not holding up. It's getting so hard. And if, they, if you can just make eye contact with one person and show you care, that keeps them going. You know, and if we really understand trauma in someone else or ourselves, we know that the hardest thing is the loneliness. It's that sense that you're alone with the pain. And think about it for yourself. It's like, if you can't witness it yourself, having somebody empathize is how you open to it. Yeah? You know, and that's compassion. So to revisit what compassion is, it's the proximate cause is tuning into helplessness and be willing to face that and then touch it with care. And it's the most radical thing we can do as human beings for ourselves and others on the planet because our self-centeredness instinctually pulls us away and says, no, I can't bear that. That's the resistance. And then that I, I can't bear that, gets weaker rather than stronger. So all it takes is practice. You know, that's the great thing. You just practice it. And with patience, you don't have to do it all overnight, just bit by bit you start seeing that you can bless and not curse everything that struggles to stay alive on this planet. Mm. 
One of my favorite names is Pleasant Street. IMS is on Pleasant Street. And yet, if you look closely, Pleasant Street has a few unpleasant things on it. (laughs) You know, so again, to get that sense of the vast range of joy and sorrow in this world, one of the hardest things for me over the years here is if I'm driving up the road, is when the chipmunks jump under my tires. You know, I'm driving along and it's like, no! Don't do that. And you know, most of the time I miss, you know, or I can stop, but sometimes I can't. You know, and so it's really to see that even in the spring, you see all this birth, but there will be death. And it takes this great compassion to live with that. And if we um, Take our time with opening to the suffering in this world, with this compassion. You'll feel the wonder of that and the great joy of that, which leads to empathetic joy. Empathetic joy, which we did today, and you probably got a sense of it, is appreciating the joy in this world. It's just the opposite of the compassion. It's really tuning into that range of joy in the world. How much do we do that culturally? Open a newspaper, turn on the radio, turn the television on. How much pure empathetic joy do we get bombarded with? I mean, it's incredible. You know, it's no wonder indifference or reactivity is a way of life. You know, it's like, how can you deal with the level of bombardment of sorrow without love? I mean, if you turn on uh, any media, there's so little love. So empathetic joy takes an enormous amount of effort, actually. I've had to work at this one really hard. Um, We all have to balance ourselves with joy. And I find that if I balance myself with enough joy, then I can work with the suffering in this world. But if I don't, it just gets too unbalanced and too difficult. It becomes lopsided. There's so much beauty in this world. And in spring, it's really important to tune into birth and tune into life and tune into the joy of that the hope of that, the blessing of that. Usually when we think of may your happiness and success never end, you know, it's almost like we think we have to be appreciating these really big things in our lives or others' lives. Similar to compassion, it's like we think that if there's so much suffering in the world, then whatever we can do is too little and not worth the effort. But that's not true. I think sending a child through school through sixth grade rather than through first grade is a really big thing. It's not a little thing. For that individual child, it's it's a chance for something more. And it's the same with joy. If you can can turn into, tune into the sound of one bird and appreciate it, or something in your life that you love and feel joy for, you know, if you, if you start to, again, measure it 
um, in the way we do how much we do for suffering. It's it's not it's hopeless. But if you it's just like trying to be in the present moment. If you think that you're gonna have to be in the present moment for the rest of this day. <laughs> oh, you know, just go to bed already, you know. <laughs> it's so heavy, you know, it's just too heavy. And then, you know, add it up. Oh my God, we have to do it for the rest of our lives, you know. <laughs> it's just too heavy. Um, these things are possible only if we have that lightness of, oh, it's possible in this moment. That's the dose. That's the dose that we can work with. Maybe, you know, when you're doing walking, you know, and you try to pick from point A to point B to be doing some metta or whatever, you know, how much can we get through three steps without losing it? You know, it's just that's what we're working with. And then it's that lightness of just saying, let me see if I can do it now. And then now. And then now. So if we can focus on one of the flowers that are opening here around us, you know, whoever, whoever did these gardens initially and keeps them up, you know, it's amazing to tune into that pleasantness of the garden. I was recently in British Columbia on an island teaching a retreat, uh, and it had this amazing balance of wilderness and then domesticity. It's like they have this beautiful garden in the middle of just wildness. And it felt so nice to have that balance there. There are times when I think we expect so much that joy is inaccessible. But if you think of anyone close to you and what brings them joy, it's so simple. You know, like when I think of Steve, I just think of a wave. You know, he, lo- he grew up surfing, and he loves to surf. It's not hard. You know, if people know me, they think of tea. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's not a lot, you know. So you think of yourself. That's how you do empathetic joy for yourself. You think of whatever simple things bring you pleasure and joy and appreciate it. We all have it. This is also like being given gold. Because if we don't recognize that we can develop this, if we don't recognize that we can value it and appreciate it, we'll stay unbalanced. And it's not living with understanding or wisdom. And unfortunately, when we close down to joy, you know, we close down to everything. When we close down to pain, we close down to everything. The trouble with joy is that (coughs) we want it to last forever. This past time when I was in Burma, I had this experience where last year when I was there, it was so difficult for me. Uh, It was really hard to go back. (laughs) Um, It took everything in me to go back. The conditions were so hard the year before. For me personally, the translator was very difficult with me. 
the weather was so hot that whenever I tried to even remotely think of a sentence for a talk, you know, it was just, after lunch, I'd go up to my cottage, you know, and it was so hot that I would just pour water all over me and lay on the floor. And then it would dry up within five or ten minutes, and I'd be like, oh. And I couldn't, like, think of how to, I'd ever pull together a talk, you know, so then I'd put more water all over me. <laughs> I'd think, oh. And then in five or ten minutes, I'd be dry again, and there'd be no talk. <laughs> so it was so hot, I was just sizzling, and the translator was difficult, and the, f the cook that um, saves my life there wasn't there. There were a lot of difficult conditions. This year, there was this incredible, great cr translator. The weather was perfect, you know, the cook was back. <laughs> I actually gave the cook a Christian name. You know, we get Burmese names when we're there, so I gave him a Christian name, but I haven't told him what it is. <laughs> but I can tell you, it's God. <laughs> so God was back in our... <laughs> And our confidence and faith was restored. <laughs> and halfway through the retreat, I started feeling like, oh no, you know, this can't possibly be repeated. You know, it's like these conditions can't possibly ever come together like this again. And I could feel that holding on. And the retreat wasn't even over. And, you know, it was just like that, not the fear of the unpleasantness again started to come in. And it was just another practice. It was like, oh, wow, you know, how can you be with the pleasantness and the conditions being okay, knowing that what goes up must come down. And I think that we start to get a sense also of why we're afraid of joy in these places. Why do we, why do we shy away from joy? It's like we feel like we're going to explode if we hold on. And it's learning to let go. It's like we have to let go even when it haven't, hasn't passed yet. Because you can feel that, whether, whether it's a person we're attached to or conditions we're attached to. One can feel that clinging, and it destroys love. It destroys life. So we can be afraid of joy as well as sorrow, if we don't have this upeka, or deep balance of mind, in the face of change. I think that the upeka practice ultimately brings the most dignity for us. And you can see as you do the, the Brahma-viharas that if you hit the barriers and you hit the difficult places, if we can't bring in mindfulness, it's just too much of a roller coaster ride. It's like we take the times that are going well personally, and then we take the times that aren't going well personally, and it's just up, down, up, down. The upeka practice, that which we'll do tomorrow, is basically unconditional acceptance of pleasure, pain, 
ups, downs, joys, sorrows, predator play, prey. Things are as they are. Things are as they are. You know, and this is a practice one can do, again, for oneself. Benefactor, dear friend, difficult. It's like, if you can imagine, I mean, we should be having week-longs of compassion, yeah? We should be having retreats of upeka, of mudita. You know, we do the metta, but we really need to be doing all of it. And this one, I find, because I'm the type who, in some ways, doesn't disconnect you know, to Mars or, you know, Pluto so easily, I tend to come in, connect more and drown. This is a practice I should remember more than any of them. You know, but it's the hardest for me to remember to bring in. Things are as they are. Things are as they are. If you're the type that disconnects easily but doesn't connect so easily, then this one might be easy for you. And it might be the metta or the compassion or the mudita that one should try to remember more. But you would do the opeka as a background, as a strength, as the foundation. So tomorrow, if you start to do that practice and you go, oh, this is my home ground, then you would work with that and take the doses of the other that start balancing you. So ultimately, it's the balancing of ourselves that brings the dignity on our spiritual path. That's where do we have our strength, really play to our strength, and then start to develop where we need the work, where we need to grow. I know when I have the delightful opportunity to do a retreat, it's like um, recharging my spiritual battery. You know, it's like um, the if you have a normal household Western life, our spiritual practice tends to go to the bottom of the list after a while. You know, it's just... Uh, you just see the lists. If we compared all our lists, you wouldn't usually find mudita on the top of the list, you know? And it's interesting, again, what we value, what we think of as important, what we prioritize. But when we come on a retreat, we can really start to see that we need to bring that balance back of prioritizing our spiritual life. So I'd like to end with a quotation that's anonymous, it's a Native American saying, that I try to remember each day because it, put thing, it puts things in perspective and brings dignity to a human life. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Let's sit for a minute.
So we still have a lot of time for those of you who are leaving on Saturday. Please remember that some of the deepest practice happens toward the end, so please hold the container. Keep going. Those of you who are staying, just the beginning for you guys. (laughs) So we all (laughs) have to keep going here. Um, And it's the new moon, and in the Buddhist tradition, for some people, uh, there's an emphasis on staying up a little later. You know, some beings stay up all night, that's not necessary, but um, (laughs) it's not a a requirement by any means. But if you feel inclined, I think Uwapa's going to stay up through midnight, and if you want to join him, that would be great. So... Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.